everyone, and welcome to Zeitgeist. I'm your host, Nivel Vaz, and today joining me is my co-host and a part-time devil such demon slayer who gets paid by a single slice of toast topped with a whole lot of jam, Jordan Conrad. Hey, what's up? I actually did just buy some really great farmer's market jam. Forgot what the fruit was. It's uh, like sort of this version of a plum jam. Very, very good. Nice. So yeah, no, I'm ready to kick some demon slash devil butt today. Still kind of unclear what the difference is. I know there's a lot of subsections of demons and devils, a lot of lore, as you might say. You know, I had no idea that there was so much hellspawn and multiple in Japan. time periods as well. I know it goes all the way back. Yeah, all the way back. There's subsections. There's systems. There's families. There's a Costa Nostra. It's like the whole nine yards <laughs> obviously this week is the highly anticipated <laughs> episode uh, covering anime specifically chainsaw man and demon slayer and let's start with demon slayer jordan what did you think of demon slayer actually oh man so it's hard to really quantify it in general terms because of course there are three kind of major sections right the first section i thought was really great actually i have three kind of major parts from season one that made me think I was really, really, really going to get into this show, which was the final selection plot, which was kind of midway through the season. Really, really early on, I believe it was episode three, there was this episode with a boulder that I felt really solidified the ethos of Demon Slayer in a unique way that I hadn't seen in any media, much less any anime. We kind of have an interesting collective history, but uh, anyway, so also the introduction, I believe it was episode seven of Muzan, I think really cemented my interest in the show. And I don't think my interest has gone away, but I do think that in the following two iterations, each time I feel like a little bit of something was lost. And I'm really interested in kind of getting into that because I don't think it's necessarily an easy answer of saying I loved it or I hated it. It's something a little bit more in between. I would say that season three, if you guys are a fan of our podcast, you'll know that the first couple episodes, there were episodes of, of House of the Dragon, I should say, where I was completely out on it. And then in the end, I was like, I'm in. I think I'm in. This one, I think I fluctuate a little bit more because there are more strengths on an episode by episode basis, but there are also some much larger weak points, I think, in terms of tension and character and really theme that I was a little disappointed by. I'm not going to lie. But the funny thing that I noticed actually before all of that was that this show is just like a show that I watched growing up. And I can kind of see that Demon Slayer pays homage early on to samurai films and culture, but using demons. And that's almost exactly the setup to a show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer from the late 90s and early 2000s that I was weaned on. And so I was just sort of delighted by that initially. Um, of course, they are both very different executions. And ultimately, I think the setup and the BBG or the big bad guy that they utilize are similar in the same way that in a normal action 
action movie, you see kind of a BBG and then a bunch of kind of side characters everywhere from samurai to westerns to James Bond. So ultimately, it is a little superficial, but I thought it was interesting anyway. As you mentioned, our histories regarding anime are wildly different. It's interesting that you mentioned like you were really invested early on in the show. And partially, I think it's because of your own history with, as you said, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like you making those mental connections and stuff like that. For me, it's interesting because I'm going to call them the bugs that that you dealt with in the later seasons are features for me because to me they're just anime staples they're just like the parts of like what makes anime anime as opposed to subverting sort of that genre or westernizing that genre or medium i mean uh, part of my history is that i didn't necessarily have cartoon network or um, the disney channel when i was growing up those came much later in my life what i had growing up in thailand was animax so instead of watching Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends or the Powerpuff Girls, I would come home to watch like Ranma one half or Full Metal Alchemist or The Lava Ueki and all of that stuff because that was my cartoons growing up. But it was much more sort of a mature animation because a lot of that dealt with like really heavy themes or like teenage themes as opposed to a more PG sort of mindset that Western animation had even in the more teenage shows. So I quickly appreciated those shows growing up much more than I did, you know, what I viewed as Western animation, because it sort of broke my innocence really quickly. And I actually appreciated that because it really forced me to appreciate sort of mature and and really hard hitting storytelling. And the mature and brutal section is something that you still are drawn to today. And it's why I think you do get a lot more out of stuff like House of the Dragon. And I also think largely the popularity here in America is why something like Game of Thrones or The Boys can actually thrive. Because you can sort of see in culture. It was in, I believe it was the 90s when you started to see imports. And still, it was very kind of fringe. It started to grow sort of in the same way that comic culture started to grow alongside the 21st century, where more and more people were getting involved in anime. Now, I think there's still a large section of America with people like me who grew up a little bit away from that. But nonetheless, I mean, we're not a monolith. So more and more and more people every single year are getting more and more into anime. And what's interesting, too, is that I feel like this came to a head back in 2020, when the entire world accepted and embraced the movie, um, Demon Slayer, and it was... Demon Slayer, the Mugon Train. I know there's a lot more to it. Oh, there's also a part of the Demon Slayer name that's in Japanese. But yeah, Mugon Train Arc was shown as a film in 2020. And here in 2023, I watched it on Netflix as it appeared, which was as, I believe, a six or seven part series. So I watched it in a little bit of a different formation. I really liked the stuff that they added for the TV show, which was, I believe, the first two episodes, which just feature the Flame Hashira. Rengaku, yeah. I thought he was the best. They actually won me over because in the um, first season, you really don't get a strong feeling of him the same way you get of some of the other characters, some of them still minor in the current um, two-season run that they have. I'm actually kind of excited to see some of them. The guys with both guys, there are two dudes. One of them is a Demon Slayer. One of them is uh, Hashira. They both have freaky looking eyes and both of them are very interesting characters. And they remind me a lot of a certain 
trope of character that we saw predominantly in a show that introduced me into anime, which is a found love for the both of us, Niv, um, which is Fate Stay Night. Do you want to talk about Fate Stay Night? Because you were the guy who first kind of introduced it to me. You explained it to me kind of in depth when we first met. Oh, uh, the Fate Saga. <laughs> me and the Fate Saga go real back. I watch the original Fate Stay Night. So I, I should mention Fate Stay Night is uh, it, it never came from a manga or a comic book, a Japanese comic book like Demon Slayer did and Chainsaw Man did both. Chainsaw Man and Demon Slayer come from a magazine in Japan called Weekly Shonen Jump, which is the most popular comic book magazine in Japan. It's similar to like Marvel Magazine or DC Comics. But it would be like if DC put out like a compendium, right? Because it's a magazine. So you get all of these different stories, right? Yes, you get different stories, you get different sort of runs of stories, and you get sort of a chapter a week. It reminds me a lot of back in the 20th century, something like Analog, which created so many of the great sci-fi authors that we know of today. Well, also Charles Dickens operated that way. Most of his books, the way he released them was through chapters in a magazine. And so did Edgar Allan Poe. Like he did his short stories through different magazines. That's how uh, storytelling was made back in the day in parts. And Japan is one of the few countries in the world that still keeps that practice in terms terms of Japanese comic books or manga. But going back to Fate Stay Night, there's another way to sort of delve out these stories, which is a cross between a video game and a manga, and it's called visual novels. And visual novels are basically video games where you get to control the flow of the stories, sort of like a choose your own adventure sort of book, but virtual. Basically, Fate Stay Night operated at first as a visual novel, and then it got adapted to its first anime called Fate Stay Night. And I remember how I explained this to you. This was so long ago, but I remember we were in our dorm room. And I was just trying to tell you, like, every fate story is a different route. So basically, it's three stories all together. And the prologue is always the same. But depending on the choice that you make in the choose your own adventure, it takes you on a completely different adventure. And those three adventures are called Fate, Unlimited Blade Works, and Heaven's Feel. And I remember I used Arizona tea cans to show you what I meant on the table because each of them have a little bit of a different flavor to them so it was actually a pretty apt metaphor and i was like see they're all on the same level as each other but they're all different from each other so they have the same character they also have sort of the same flow of story but they take you on a wildly different adventure than the other ones do and also the main love interest of each is different because that's sort of what leads the story so i watched fate stay night or the original fate adaptation that first adaptation which was not great it was not a very well-received adaptation back in Thailand. And I fell in love with the characters, uh, some of which are still iconic today, like Saber. Well, Saber is King Arthur, right? Yeah. So basically, the I know we're n- now just talking about Fate Stay Night. We'll tie it back. But so uh, very, very quickly, but without explaining the game, without explaining the grail at all, because that's almost an entirely different plot. But just the rank of the characters is pretty interesting. So basically, the um, the story is focused on like two sort of subsections of people. One is the master's group, and the second is the servant's group. And the main plot is basically these ordinary mages summon heroes from the past to fight for them against other mages and other servants. And that's the whole like plot. Basically, you follow around like a master named Chiro and his servant Saber, who is revealed to be King Arthur. 
later on in the story. And the reason we're mentioning all of this is because eventually when Fate Zero, which is like the a prequel to Fate Stay Night, came out and was adapted, it was adapted by Ufa Table, which is the animation company that animated Demon Well, Slayer. and Ufa Table is an interesting crew too, because they take a lot of care in their visual composition. This is actually, I think, in its best form, especially for Fate, in their films, because the first two of their runs with the Fate series were both, well, first the prequel, which is called Fate Zero, and then one of the three Arizona cans, which was Unlimited Blade Works. And then the third Arizona can, so to speak, was mm -hmm. the movie series. And so Heaven's Feel ran as three movies as a trilogy. We watched all three of them together, and all three of them, I think, they all have a level of visual stylization that is really beautiful and really cinematic and something that we really don't see in the Americas at all because it utilizes the 3D form in a two-dimensional style, which you see a little bit more and more. Um, you see that with stuff like the Sony Pictures style of animation in Spider-Verse. There is a movie that came out late last year, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, that utilizes some of that stylization at well. I really did like that. Hopefully, maybe we can hang on that on a later episode. But nonetheless, I think that Ufa Table. Ufa Table. Ufa how do you say it? Uh, Ufa table? Ufa table. <laughs> it's spelled UFO table. Yeah, but I have always called it Ufa table because one person told me it was Ufa table when I asked them. I love Ufa table. Me too. It's a crew that operates still more in that anime sphere. So it feels very anime. It looks very anime. Yeah. Even more than Demon Slayer, I think, which is, I think, more of a classic anime in the way it's written. It feels much more anime in um, Chainsaw Man, but I think that's a good thing. I mean, they both feel that way to you, and I think that's really interesting because they're more mainstream. They're, they were both part of the circulation of Weekly Shonen Jump. So Shonen in particular is like the, what I would call the mainstream uh, genre of um, Japanese manga. So there different types like shoujo which is romance Senin, which is young adult. Shonen is known for it's PG, it's for boys, it's action or sport oriented. And things like Dragon Ball, Naruto, Bleach, One Piece, you know, all of them are classic shonen uh, manga and they all belong to Weekly Shonen Jump as well. And it's ironic because like, I think this is the first time because Fate is not that. If anything, Fate is like a Senin sort of storyline because it deals with much more adult themes, even though like Demon Slayer and Chainsaw Man, I feel deal with a really big adult themes themselves. Well, they're both deeply themic in different ways, but I think I would say that, and for anyone listening who has watched Fate, you know, but I don't know if very many Americans have. It's a story that really has a psychological core and has a interesting quandary in regard to ethics, which I want to tie back to Demon Slayer in a moment or two, but that is sort of my baseline when it comes to what I expect with anime, because that is one of only two anime I've seen up to this point, both shown to me, well, actually three, technically. Two of them shown to me by Univ, and the other one is called Steins Gate, which is also deeply non-shonen. It's much more in the same line of what we would think of as science fiction. But that's yeah. all I'll say about Steins Gate for now. I do want to get into the stories that Demon Slayer tells, because it's, as you said, pretty mainstream, pretty shonen adjacent, and 
has its own kind of timbre, which ultimately I think is a good thing and really interesting. You also mentioned that in 2020, Demon Slayer made a really big splash. Demon Slayer, the movie, the Mugen Train, basically the storyline it covered, became the most gross movie in the world in 2020, partially because of the pandemic. They still managed to make the most money and they ran a theatrical run. And I think just the fact that they got people to sit their butts in theaters in the middle of a pandemic is pretty impressive. I mean, it's something that Christopher Nolan couldn't do in 2020. So it beat out Tenant, I think that is a high enough bar. And also considering it's an interesting story. To me, kind of the central character of the Mugen Train arc is tied between our normal hero, Tanjiro, and Rengoku, the Hashira. Um, No, so a Hashira is someone, can you you, um, do some kind of basic translation for me? Because I know all of this in the terms of what the story tells me. But in terms of like real life, I, of course, know geishas, which play a large part in the third saga. But I think that's also because we in America know a little bit about geishas. We've made media about geishas. We don't really have any media that I know of about this. It's because it's directly tied to anime tropes as opposed to historical context. So in anime, at least in shonen anime, there's always these hierarchies or organizations, whether they be good or evil, especially in like these mainstream shonen manga or shows that portray sort of like the evil organization and their hierarchy. In this case, in the Demon Slayer case, it's like the 12 Kizuki, the upper rank and the lower rank demons, basically the strongest demons in the game, which are 12 of them and there are six lower ones and then six upper ones and the upper ones are numbered uh, from one to six and one is the strongest demon and they have their numbers hanging out in their eyes they're tattooed in their eyes which is sort of like not only their signifier but also their sort of artistic style to make them like menacing and stand out in this wide expansive world and the hashira are sort of their emphasis or they're like the upper echelon of demon slayers so they represent uh, the masters of the different styles of uh, demon slaying or like the sword styles so each hashira has like an element or a factor that they're attached to connected to a sword style. So Rengoku is um, like the Hashira of the fire style because he's like the master of the fire style of sword fighting. You know, like the sound Hashira, who I forget his name, but he like is featured predominantly in, in the entertainment arc. And I should also talk about that manga in particular is broken up in arcs and saga. Saga represents like, I would say, the first act of a story, whereas an arc represents a couple of chapters in a story basically tied together in a location in terms of like a villain that they have to beat etc or even i think it would be more appropriate to say like a saga is like a show sorry and an arc is like a season and an arc typically will run in a season oriented style when it appears on crunchyroll for example the three demon slayer arcs are all subjugated by their actual name which is a little bit um, hard to navigate when you don't have the numbers because it doesn't give you the seasons. It says Mugen Train Mm -hmm. and Entertainment Arc. And that's the thing. Like Jordan said, three seasons. It's not three seasons. It's two seasons. The first season of Demon Slayer and then the second season has two cores. It features two arcs. The first half of the second season appeared on Netflix alone. And so I watched it as sort of a second season then I clicked over to the third season. But I think 
think it will eventually be that they'll fold in the second half of the second season into that same timeline. And so it's just semantics, really. The two arcs are kind of crunched together. And so it's interesting. I also think that that is also a reason why I was, um, I felt a little distasteful, was I felt like one of my critiques for the second half of season two is that it could have been seven episodes. But that said, um, I do want to talk quickly about Rengoku because I feel like he is an interesting part of the second arc. We get the Mugen Train arc, right? And as I mentioned, that has Rengoku, who is the more sort of heroic, I think he's sort of the platonic ideal of what makes a Hashira or, you know, a Demon Slayer core in general, or a core member, I should say. And then you have the younger but central character of Tanjiro. And Tanjiro's uh, interesting character, his fighting technique is kind of twofold. He was trained using water breathing, but he seems to be less and less precious with that as he's going through the series and also utilizes a technique Sun breathing, which is like the original breathing. That technique is utilized more in the second half of season two. But his kind of major arc in Mugen Train is really interesting because the first part of it feels a little bit like the movie Inception, I would say. He gets into this dream world, and that's actually a really good way to talk about his background, right? Where he first starts in the show, his family is killed off, all except for one. And the one who remains is a demon. Yeah, she's been turned into a demon. Her name is Nezuko. She has, is Tanjiro's younger sister. And the way it wor- like demons work in this world, they're actually very similar to vampires in a lot of ways because they survive off of blood and they cannot survive in sunlight. And it's really interesting because Tanjiro tries, like his main purpose, his want, as we've discussed in previous episodes, like the, his driving motivation is to find a cure for his sister. So not only is he joining like the Demon Slayer cores to have the best chance to find a cure for his sister, he also needs to convince them not to kill his sister. And he constantly needs to protect her from sunlight and from other demons in this little box that he carries around on his back. And to me, that is the primary kind of tension that I think at its best exploits in unique and interesting ways. And particularly in Mugen Train, I feel like while it depends parts from that a little bit, which I do have to ding it on, it does have some interesting quandaries about what makes a demon, um, which was also explored at the very end of season one, which I thought was fantastic. The Hashira is sort of the emotional core of whatever story takes place, right? So when you have the characters in the end of season one who are actively going after Nezuko, you have that as one aspect, which is kind of testing and questioning and sort of uh, validation. In some ways, Nezuko is a proxy for the validation of Tanjiro himself because they are somewhat interconnected as siblings. And I feel like in the case of the train, you have sort of the sense of honor and the sense of right and wrong and sort of like ethics that you get into a little bit. Uh, Let's talk about Muzan too, who's like creator of all these demons. He's like the original demon. He's dressed like Michael Jackson. He has like the smooth criminal hat and that gangster vest and 
the way he appears in the show, basically Tanjiro just goes into this random city and he senses a demon and then he sees like this the demon Muzan just masquerading as a human being with like a family and a child and everything. And that's how he sort of operates. He is like the demon king or whatever. And the reason for me he's interesting is like he has also a very strong motivation, which is to overcome the sun because he ultimately wants to he only fears uh the power of the sun to kill him. So he created a bunch of demons to essentially serve as like scouts to find like a cure to the disease he views as which is the sun. Right. And that's this blue lily that he's searching for. A blue spider lily. Yeah, I think he's a really engaging and interesting character. And that said, not all of the 12 echelon really do it in the same way. In fact, I think some of the non-12 characters that they have incorporated are equally interesting demons. I think all of the demons, to me, are pretty equal. Some of them that are supposedly more powerful are whatever. At the end of the day, I think it matters most about how these characters are portrayed and how they make themselves known through the story and how they sort of conduct themselves. I think that's really what makes these upper echelon demons really stand out. The way in which their honor system runs or lack of honor system. I think what makes Demon Slayer especially special in terms of its writing, uh, we should also mention like the author, Koihiro uh, Gudokage. The way he writes his villains is almost second to none. And I feel like that's what made Demon Slayer and Chainsaw Man part of like this new wave of shonen that's a little bit more darker, but a little even more human. And it's exploration of like what makes a villain a villain or a monster a monster. Because the author consistently reminds the audience that these demons were once human beings. Because, you know, they're not just these monsters that came from the ground or anything. They're humans that fully accepted the ability to become demons because they lived in incredible hardships. They lived very, very bad lives. Yeah, and the corruption of the hearts is an important and essential part of every arc. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, multiple times, like, the Hashira are also poised with this question of, like, hey, do you want to become a demon? Like, you can live forever. All you need to do is avoid the sun and drink a bunch of innocent blood. But you will live forever. You will fight forever. You will become stronger. You won't have to be afraid of death ever again. And you won't have to be afraid of anything. That's a very attractive offer to have if your life is hell, like most of these characters' lives are. But Tengen, so he's, I think, the emotional center point of the entertainment district arc, which I do want to get into here. He is first shown, his introduction is, I think, equal to that of the Hashira Rengoku in the way that it immediately shows what he is about. With Rengoku, he is talking to these young, one young girl and one older woman, and he, like, buys all of their food as sort of a gesture of kindness. I think that's just a very beautiful scene. With Tengen, well, we've seen him once before, obviously. He was in the first season, and very quickly you get a sense of what his speaking style is like, because pretty much every word that comes out of his mouth is some form of the word flashy. He uses the word flashy quite a lot, and he first tries to kidnap some girls into starting his brigade to fight the demons in the entertainment district, and of course, the boys stop him, and they're like, well, we're coming with you. And the boys 
referred to Tanjiro and his two main friends and sidekicks, Zenitsu and Inosuke, two other like fledgling demon slayers who also have very unique and individualized personalities. Once we get into the plot of it, you really get some interesting moments with them. But something that I think is themic in a way that when we're talking about the entertainment district arc in general is unavoidable, which is that Tengen immediately is looking for his three wives, right? So that is an important takeaway right from the get-go is that he is going into the red light district, right? So it sets the tone, right? It's not a particularly serious tone in the early episodes, particularly. The demons are a little sillier, I would say, than some of the demons in the Mugen Train arc in unique ways. I think there are definitely serious moments and there is some really dramatic and dire stuff, especially when we learn about the background of these two demons. So Demon Slayer takes on, I think, an objectifying tone in my mind. He's got this chauvinistic quality and it translates to the way in which the female characters, especially the main female characters, are shown. I don't think it's with intent of malice or blindness, really, at all. But I think it does utilize its focal Hashira as a tonal baseline and fundamentally builds its ethics on the Hashira. And so because of Tengen's sort of notes as a character, I don't think it worked for me, especially because I don't find him all that entertaining or even noteworthy, other than the fact that he says the word flashy a lot. And I also think that that in itself is kind of a drawback for me because his dialogue when translated just doesn't ring very true in my ears. His empathy is a little weakened compared to the Flame Hashira from last season. And there are great moments in almost every episode, but there are also moments that for me are subpar or worse. Yeah, as Jordan said, the entertainment arc essentially starts with the Ashura Tengen deciding he wants to hunt one of the upper echelon demons. So one of the six strongest demons, he gets like a tip that they are in the entertainment district in a nearby city. And he sent his three wives as sort of like a forward scouting party. And each one of his wives is like masquerading as sort of like a geisha in a different brothel in order to find where the demon is hiding because they don't know who this demon is. They just know they're hiding in one of the three big brothels. And Tanjiro, because he defeated one of the lower echelon uh, demons in the Mugon train, gets invited alongside with his two friends and fellow demon slayers, Zenitsu and Inosuke. And what's really interesting, again, like how the author constructs his villains in a really unique way. He also constructs like his other characters in a really unique way. He always portrays them almost with a sense of two-dimensionality in their introduction, meaning they're always like have a certain personality trait and a certain motivation up in center, but we still haven't dug really deep into who they are. And usually when we dig deep into who they are later on in the story, their motivations and their actual like inner selves are very, very different from who they are on the outside. So their internal is always very different from their external. And one of the things I want to push back on, at least for Jordan, is Tengen is not necessarily a bug. The way he acts is more of a feature, at least in my eyes. Because the reason he says flashy and all of that stuff is because unlike the other Hashira, which come from their sword fighting in a more traditional samurai contextual level, his background as a fighter or a sword fighter comes from the fact that he's a ninja. He was brought up as like someone who kills in the shadows.
heroes and someone who was brought up to fight dirty and to win at any cost without honor and all of that stuff. And because his upbringing, as we find out later on, was so difficult. I mean, his backstory is a little insane. He was forced to kill all his brothers and sisters because that was part of the training to become like the best ninja in his family. And because of that trauma that he has, he absolutely rejected that upbringing and yells, yeah, I need to be the flashiest person I can possibly be. And another thing about him is that because he is so vocal about who he is as a person, people look up to him as a feature of his trauma. He himself doesn't believe in himself at all. He actually views himself as one of the weakest Hashira and one of the most untalented Hashira there is. That's what I mean. I feel like I agree with you in the first half. He is very grating as a character because, you know, he comes in, he plays into sort of chauvinistic tropes. He immediately tries to kidnap like women to go with him on this very dangerous mission. He sends his own wives into these very dangerous sort of situations. But then as he's broken down further and further and further, you see him as a very human and very sort of, I would say, wounded character. And to me, you know, like that doesn't fix all the problems I have with him. I still think he's one of the least interesting Hashira or one of the least interesting characters we're introduced to in Demon Slayer. But I think overall, the author still has a talent of making even the least interesting character. I can agree insofar as I think that the character by the end is far more interesting, obviously. And I think the way that we end with the character, I guess, I think a really poignant moment, which I'll get to in a little bit. But I also don't know if necessarily the backstories in this arc are as connected or as engaged in the main plot as some of the previous stuff, which is where I bump up a little bit against this particular arc, I guess. So we were also talking about Inosuke and Zenitsu. Inosuke and Zenitsu are both demon slayers alongside Tanjiro. Zenitsu is kind of a little bit more of a girl crazy... Scaredy cat. Not lazy, but he's not necessarily... Yeah, he's a scaredy cat. He's a wimp, I guess is what you would say. Yeah. But his talent is that when he's asleep, he becomes an absolute menace, an absolute force to be reckoned with. Whereas Inusuke is like a normal person. When he's asleep, he's asleep. And he, when he's awake, is actually overly competitive and very combative. And he also wears a boar head on his head. He does. So that's the thing is he's got this feminine face and so he hides his feminine face. What do you think about Inusuke's voice? <laughs> it's funny because like I watched uh, the entire show in dub and you watched it in sub. Not entirely in sub, actually. I switched between so that I can hear both of them. Okay. I did my research, so to speak. So I do know. And the interesting thing about Inosuke is that his voice is almost identical in both. That's so interesting. In both versions, he sounds pretty much like a combination of Cartman and Batman. Cartman from South Park. And Batman for Batman. (laughs) And oddly enough, he still manages to keep that Cartman-esque quality when he's speaking in Japanese, which I was honestly a little impressed by. Well, the reason Jordan is asking me this question is because... And look, I think he's a very talented voice actor. I mean, I can't do what he does, so respect to him. But but, uh, he is voiced by Bryce Peppenbrook, who also voices Shiro Emiya, the main character in in the Fate series, and specifically in um, Unlimited Blade Works and uh, Heaven's Feel. And 
to me, his voice is so grating. Every time I listen to his voice, it's so annoying. <laughs> so I can't stand uh, any time like his voice actor appears in in a, uh, a show that I'm watching. I second that. I think he's got a lot of talent behind him. I think he is very emotive um, and obviously very versatile. You wouldn't know that it was the same actor, but I do think there is something about that timbre of voice that can be um, a little bit difficult to stomach. So I get you there. But I think what makes this work as opposed to fate, you know, like I think Shiro was supposed to, we're, we're supposed to get behind him. He's the main character and it's hard to get behind him when Bryce Peppenbrook voices him. But Ionosuke is not a character that we necessarily need to get behind. It's Tanjiro we need to get behind. And he's brilliantly voiced by, um, at least in the dub version, by Zach Agler. And see, I like him even better in the original Japanese, yeah. which is why I've tended to go towards that. Because the Japanese voice actor, who I do not have the name of and probably couldn't pronounce if I did, was an absolutely incredible. Natsuke Hane is the voice actor, or is the is the seiyu? You say seiyu um, in Japanese. So early on, we we get these three going after, as you mentioned, the wives, right? Yeah. So that's sort of the impetus of the plot. And this is kind of my first critique, is that I feel like the wives are a motivation point. They're an engine for the story, but they don't end up paying off for me in any meaningful way. And it's actually really hard for me to keep track of all the wives when there are other people that they also start to introduce, especially in... In episode two of this arc, there's just so many characters and so much going on because each of these men disguise themselves as women to fit into the Red Light Entertainment District. And so you have these three and they all have their own arcs and they all have their own plots. And then there's also the wives you have to keep track of. Plus you have Tengen and his own story going on. Although his is a little more muted in these episodes. And so I also do want to point out that while the story has a lot of good poignancy when it is based in heart and based in emotion and based in ethics. There's also a lot of this show, which I also can't really knock because I think they managed to do better and I, not better, but, but more to my sensibility as an American and to a Western sense in terms of comedy. I think their comedy is grounded in situations and translates really, really, really well. And when I have, you know, many quandaries about my own Western sensibilities, I do want to really stake that this show does a great job of balancing comedy and drama. Yeah, I feel like both Demon Slayer and um, Chainsaw Man are more subversions of the classic mainstream anime tropes, or at least they try to be. They're trying to move away from it, which is why I call them sort of the new wave shonen. Um, but yeah, to me, it, the show, like uh, that specific arc was interesting to me in the beginning and at the end, actually. Uh, I enjoyed it in the beginning because I enjoyed how distinctive each brothel was. Because as you said, the three main characters, Zenitsu, Tanjiro and Ionosuke, each sort of spy and and cr cross dresses as uh, women to spy on these different brothels. And each brothel has like a different identity to it. And each <laughs> character finds 
themselves in their own sort of hijinks while Tengen is doing whatever he wants <laughs> uh, uh, individually. Um, but then it's the middle that was was grating for me as an audience member because that's like the part where you know they discover who the demon is in one of the brothels and then it takes a really long time for all the characters to converge on one another to fight this demon. And the, But the demon is great. I, the demon is Daki. She is the highest paid sort of geisha in one of the brothels and the reason she's a great character is because she's the highest paying paid uh paid geisha in one of the brothels she feels like she has the right to abuse all the other geishas in the brothel yeah including the house mother which was just i think to um, to me as a westerner also an additional confusion in these early episodes i was often having to sort of like rewatch, and it was lucky that i was able to go back and sort of litigate a lot of this because at first i was like is she the house mother is the demon the house mother and i was like no that doesn't make sense and she's the she's the geisha and she does you know say to to her house mother right before she backhands her she's like i make all your money old lady get out of here but you know and so this early section because there's so many different plots it's this rodeo of a lot of different stuff and a lot of different tones and a lot of different ideas and not all of them involve demons and so i sort of am there and i honestly i think when you get deeper into it similar to you i start to sort of i i get disengaged it's not that i'm confused anymore it's that i'm sort of on the back seat and i'm like okay i know what's going to happen now as you do when is it gonna happen but that's the thing even then when it did happen and i mean starting from i think it was like episode seven uh there is i think like episode seven and episode eight both have great plot twists to them which uh, restart the engine of this particular arc you know and the first one has to do with like nezuko because nezuko again is on tanjiro's backpack uh, uh, backpack you know she's constantly part of the story but she has like a major moment in in the arc herself where she actually gets to do something which is a great moment in my opinion um and then the out of nowhere plot twist uh, that that comes into play the really dangerous and really insane plot twist and if you want to learn about that plot twist we're gonna turn on a little bit of music for you guys and get back to our spoiler-filled conversation of the second half of this arc. So if you haven't caught up yet, I know it did just drop on Netflix. Feel free to watch, and we will talk all about Daki and her secrets right after this. All right, we're back. And now we are going to delve into our spoiler section. So last warning, guys, if you don't want to be spoiled, even though this for those who watch this show on Crunchyroll, this has already been out since like January of 2022. Part of the reason we wanted to cover this show now is because the Sword Village arc, which is season three of Demon Slayer, is um, coming out in March. So we thought it was like a great time to sort of cover the show, because especially because this specific arc and what we're going to talk about broke the Internet last year so it felt like high time that we talked about it now yeah i'll tell you i believe there was a audio of tanjiro 
from this season on TikTok. Yeah, I believe it. So yeah, like uh, we talked about like two major turning points in the entertainment arc section of the season. And one of them was, again, had to do with Nezuko. So laying it out, as I said in the beginning, they, they're searching for the demon, which is Daki, who is like this highest earning geisha in one of the brothels. And in the second section of the arc, they find her and all the demon slayers converge on her. And they converge on her very slowly. Like if I remember correctly, the first one who encounters her is it's Zenitsu, right? Well, Zenitsu finds her. Yeah, he finds her. He doesn't really he doesn't really fight her much. Yeah. Because Tanjiro gets to sort of break open that seal. But Zenitsu is the one who is in that same area. Yeah, while Ianosuke, if I remember correctly, is the one who saves the wives. Uh, or at least like most of the people. Yeah, track the wives a little bit for me here because I lose track of the wives pretty quickly in that middle ground. Yeah, so basically Tengen's favorite wife gets captured really early on. That's sort of like the impetus of like, where has she gone? That's part of the mystery. And then it's revealed that she has been captured by this demon along with a bunch of other villagers and placed in like this underground area of the brothel. And Daki's like demon powers is that she has like these scars that she's able to manipulate that are super sharp but are part of her body actually so they're actually like eating people as well so she's been eating her prisoners with her scarves but they look like a traditional geisha's scarf they do which i think mechanically i start to sort of lose track of the the scarves properties because they just seem to be sort of like are they if they're part of her body why don't they like hurt at all like they just sort of like grow back like weaves but i think that's also something that's one of my lesser critiques because at the end of the day that's just kind of a mechanic of the show you can sort of lose yourself in your imagination you can suspend your disbelief there but yeah i i have questions about the properties of Daki's geisha scarf. I guess, like, again, feature not a bug for me <laughs> because the demons are shown to be essentially invulnerable. The only way to kill them is either by beheading them or, you know, having them being exposed to the sun. The sunlight seems to be the major one, too, because as we get into very quickly, beheading Daki does... Um, <clears throat> what's, the, what's the PC version of what I'm about to say? Jack. And that's part of the big turning point here. So, but before I get to that, you know, they, they find her and then Tanjiro has a one-on-one -on -one against her. And even though he's defeated like other really strong demons before, this is the first time we're shown like an upper echelon demon in the show. So essentially like this big boss battle is too much for him to handle. And for me, that was great because usually in a lot of other anime, especially mainstream anime like Demon Slayer, usually when a main character goes up against like unstoppable force they eventually are able to overcome it by themselves by basically finding different power-ups in their being as the fight drags on but not tanjiro tanjiro just the entire time he's entirely outmatched and he has to rely on teamwork with other people just to barely survive and that's what i appreciate about the show the most because tanjiro remains constantly underpowered because he's human it relies largely on that same mechanical usage that you see in big triple i mean i guess this is a triple a anime shonen the character of 
Tanjiro is set up to utilize breath work and his fighting style is in some ways really in tune with martial arts as I know them in real life. It felt very grounded, especially in the first season. But in this particularity, I was seeing a lot more of the more traditional sort of, well, and the only thing I can compare it to is Naruto, which is the third anime that I have also seen a few episodes of and reminded me a lot of that because he was utilizing these sort of power-ups and it did feel very much like a video game where you didn't really have all of this and so when he was losing it felt like it was a cheap loss when he was winning it felt like a, a weird win because his win didn't come from his breath work that he had been utilizing in fact he was learning as he was going he was learning his um, new fighting style and of course he didn't do very well because that fighting style was something he discovered in the moment and that's the flame breathing we were talking about earlier uh sun breathing sun breathing but that's where I will push back because I feel like that happened very naturally. It's been happening over the course of a couple of seasons where his son breeding technique, you know, which has been passed down to him subconsciously has been slowly appearing. But I think the cheap thing that I think we can both agree on, but I have more mixed feelings about it than you is Nezuko is like part of the equation where she gets like super powered up as a demon and then kicks Daki's butt. So this is a turn of events that is something that I kind of have little patience for in anime, which is the um, breasted boobly style of anime culture. Something that is well-liked in a lot of uh, areas and I think is also totally in line with, as I was saying earlier, the chauvinistic tone of the Hashira that's sort of the emotional center point. And that comes to a head when Nezuko magically grows up, which is like, I'm saying this in sort of like a, in a way that makes it sound like I don't like it at all. I think there's something to like here. There's a lot that's really interesting. She goes from being sort of obsequious to having a little bit more bite to her. And that's really cool. But I could go without the breasts, especially because she, it, it doesn't seem to be something they're really fully committing to in terms of stylization. So I come up against that stylization. It's the fact that she has this clothing that magically grows with her into adulthood, except for somehow the chest area is the part that doesn't grow. But that said, once you get the character of Tanjiro falling and Nezuko rising and not really getting anywhere because she's, you know, not strong enough. And then when she does grow strong and she goes totally rabid, I thought this was a very interesting moment. And I just wish that it could be tweaked slightly so that it could have been a little bit better. I completely agree with that. For me, I was a little bit more forgiving of it. Even I was like, uh, do we really need to like show that much cleavage on, on this character? But to me, I was just trying to be like, well, maybe, you know, because when Nezuko is an interesting character is in terms of like body proportion and everything, because she shifts from being really, really small to really, really big, depending on her emotionality. You know, like if she's angry, she matures really quickly. But when she's in a calm state or in like a scared state, 
great. She's like this short little chip chibi. We call it chibi in Japanese, like small little cute person. And to me, I was just like, no, her clothes don't magically grow with her. I think it's just like she's outgrown the clothes she was given. And that's why the proportions of her body are now different. The clothes don't grow, but they do. It's it, it, you. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't correlate. So that's that's my thing is if you want to commit commit that that's what i'm saying they don't fully commit yeah if you want to make the shirt tiny then then make it tiny no i agree i think we're saying the same thing but yeah so nezuko's actual fighting moment talk to me about that i think it's a really powerful moment in the show regardless because the entire time as we talked about the main motivation the main driving force in this entire story is that tanjiro is protecting his sister from the outside world whether it be the sun the demons the fellow hashira you know like and hopefully to find a cure as well and to find a cure and the entire time he's the one defending her because she's the only family he has left in the entire world you know and the entire time she she isn't she doesn't talk because she is a, a demon at this point she while most demons can talk she can't because she hasn't fully committed to being a demon so she's in like this weird weird spaces as as a being because she can't actively communicate with other people and she's denying herself from eating other people because she does not want to become fully a demon to me her lack of talking is just because she usually has a piece of wood or some sort of bar that remains permanently in her mouth and sort of biting down it's helping her not devour people because she's still very much like a rabid dog uh, she can turn into a rabid dog really easily under the right conditions which is what happens right and this is the condition because previously, a noted point is that we had a situation just like this before in one of the earlier episodes, but because she was at a level head, not necessarily super level, but she wasn't protecting her brother, she wasn't going rabbit, but this moment transitioned her into a new level of being. Now, I also think that this brings me to another point, which is the pacing. This episode is just all about that. There's not a whole lot else. There's a few little sub points, stuff with the wives in, in these episodes, the episode before and the episode after. But in terms of the character of Nezuko is herself, a lot of it is her going rabid and then her brother trying to calm them down. And that takes up a lot of screen time. And I'll tell you, I think we could have done with that getting folded into another episode. I think that chapter could easily have been a little shorter in execution. But I will push back. I think it was actually better pace than a lot of the other episodes in that season, purely because it was broken down in, in two really interesting ways, which affected the audience emotionally. I wonder if you felt the same way as I did, because in that first half of the episode where she's kicking Doki's butt, I'm like, yeah, do it, win, kick her butt. But then in that second half where she's absolutely like destroying like houses and, and buildings with people in it and people are getting hurt. All of a sudden you're like, no, this is not this is not good because she's Nezuko is losing herself to becoming a demon because of her love for her brother. I want to bring it to the other end, which is starting to talk about Daki a little bit and her turn of events, which is that that was the first moment and the only moment with Daki where I was super connected because I felt like these two characters were equals and one of them was a character that was unexpected. And so I think in terms of the 
uh, drama. I think that was an absolute highlight point, not just of this sort of stream of episodes, this this three episode run, but the entire season and the entire arc. Because we also don't know that when you knock off her head, she can just stick it back on, which was, I think, one moment where I really started to feel the show deflate. Because that was a moment where all of a sudden the rules that we were playing with changed. And it's okay that they change, but if there's, but if you make a twist happen, you need to start to do some kind of lead up so that it doesn't completely throw your audience. And maybe for some people, it seems like the show is very popular. For a lot of people, that worked. For a lot of people, that twist was fine. For me, it was a little nonsensical. <laughs> for me, I, I thought it was actually brilliant. because. But it also plays into that trope. But before we get to that, I really want to talk about what you, you just said, of how they played on an equal playing field. Because Daki was the entire time was shown as like this monster, right? Not just as, as a monster of a demon of like hurting, you know, people with her demon powers, but actively like being a monster as in her geisha persona, the way she tortured and abused people. But when she was fighting Nezuko and losing, you know, she shrinked into being like this scared little girl because she she felt like all of a sudden she was losing and she had no control over the situation. So effectively she saw it is like bullying which was a perfect sort of segue and lead up to the stronger twist of this arc and her relationship to the actual monster in this arc which is her brother basically when she loses to nezuko another brilliant moment is the only way tantra can calm nezuko down is by humming like a song their mom used to hum to them so basically the memory of of their mother is what calms nezuko down back into a, a more human calm state but then tengen comes out of nowhere and chops off Doki's head and Doki's like no how could you do this it's not fair i shouldn't have lost i'm like one of the 12 Kizuki and he's like you're not one of the upper six you're really weak and then she starts whining and crying and she yells out for her brother and her brother literally grows out of her and that's and that was like the scariest moment where you know this absolute monster of a being just uh, grew out of her but in, in a way that made a lot of human sense because when you really think about it it's basically like a little girl crying out for her brother to protect her which is not that different from how Nezuko and Tanjiro's relationship operates either. And we'll get to that soon. But to me, the reason that worked is because even though there was no lead up, as Jordan said, one of the reasons these demons are on the upper six, or at least I know this, and Jordan doesn't know this, is because, you know, like they're, they're just super, super strong. And at least in Daki and her brother Gyotaro's like situation, they have found a way to avoid avoid the sort of fatality that is getting beheaded by finding like a loophole to it which is connecting their heads to each other their bodies are well effectively she utilizes his power as a demon or whatever and she's able to remain stationary despite the fact that she's headless but the fact of the matter that we watched this demon for you know multiple episodes fight against Tanjiro you sort of get a sense well and for me i my patience dims pretty quickly once people start bringing out swords and fists and i call it kicky punchy i don't like my media to be too kicky punchy and scarves 
or Scarfy for that matter. And um, I I think that this this run all the way to the very end is really pretty Scarfy. You get just way, way too much back and forth, way too much fighting. And the the fighting is, I think, sometimes just a little bit not as deeply connected as it could be because it's a use of not necessarily skill, but endurance. That, to me, makes it less dramatic. And that's one major point that I feel like takes a really long time to lead up to. Once the drama gets back again, I think you and I will probably both agree, I suspect that one of your favorite parts of the latter episodes is one of my favorite parts, which is once you get Gyuturo and the last remaining person standing, Tanjiro, you get something that's really interesting and really cool, and the seduction of Tanjiro, which you mentioned kind of before, which is um, in Mugen Train, the same kind of conversation happens. Do you want to become a demon? Those last three episodes broke the internet because it was the fighting and Ufa Table is is renowned for their visual composition of fighting. I mean, their animation is second to none, essentially, in, in the game right now. And so their fight scenes are the most visually striking fight scenes, even if they get really punchy, scarvy, as <laughs> Jordan said. You know, like, I agree with Jordan. The more dramatic parts of that fight are the far more interesting. And I think part of the drama, even though Jordan won't agree, but I think part of the drama is the fact that all of a sudden, there is an added equation to defeating these two demons, which is needing to behead them both at the same time. And the drama comes from how impossible that feat feels. And it's impossible with one person. But then the implicit thing is, of course, once they do finally get defeated, it's the power of teamwork. And that works, but it's the lead up there, which comes to the another major headache for me, which is in the last three episodes. And granted, it's really cool once you get this sort of devastation, right? They eventually destroy most of the entertainment district, as much as we can see anyway. The fight just completely annihilates people. And that was really, I mean, you can tell that's a really big toll on Tanjiro. And he sort of like loses his motivation, he loses a lot of inertia. And as I mentioned, inertia is kind of the thing leading this to its conclusion. But there's another major thing, which is that both Inosuke and uh, Tegan. Oh, Tengen. But Tengen and... Um, Inosuke. A lot of Japanese names. Tengen and Inosuke <laughs> both get... Mortally wounded, yeah. Beaten down. Um, Tengen is, yeah, both of them were mortally wounded. Tengen is poisoned and Inosuke is stabbed in the heart. Now with Tengen, he's a Hashira, right? And so when the Hashira Tengen, so when you know this, this stuff about him, it's not so unbelievable that he was able to stop his own heart. I mean, stopping your own heart, and it reminds me of something like Kill Bill. I use a Western version of this, but you can see, and it goes back to the initial thing I find really interesting, which is the act of martial arting, the act of really like controlling your body. And that, I believe, totally. That is, I think, believable. Now, in terms of the way drama plays, I think it's a little deflationary, especially because of the other stuff that happens. But if it was just one thing, I think I could have been sold on it. The big thing is that someone who is not a Hashira yeah. rearranges his own organs 
<laughs> no, I agree. And that's why he's able to stand back up. And Nosuke stands up and he goes, oh, I can switch my organs around. I can just shift them around a little bit. I'm like, man, that would be really cool on a night of heavy drinking, huh? <laughs> why don't I learn how to rearrange my organs, Inosuke? No, I agree. Even when I saw that, I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Jordan, you mentioned that being an endurance fight and part of the nice part of that drama is that that's Gyotaro's like power as a demon. Like you get stabbed by him and he poisons you. And that poison is really devastating. And we see its marks all over both Tengen's and Inosuke's bodies uh, by the way they're affected by it. And even Tanjiro later on. Um, but so when Inosuke also rises and is like yeah i grew up in the harsh mountainside of course i'm immune to poison i believe that more i was like okay that's still a stretch but i still believe it but to compare to moving your own organs which he has never mentioned ever before like an anime your sense of disbelief can be stretched really really far but it needs to be built up and in here it just wasn't i think the author in one of the rare moments where he was like blocked or like and stuck in a corner he was just like well in order to drive up tension and drama i need to do this and i guess i can come up with something on the fly and that to me all deflated that to me was a rare moment where i deflated but again you know the next episode it brought me back so it feels almost like a nitpick where i'm just like whatever anime being anime I have a lot less patience for it. And I think in that compared with everything else, it's a lot more major. And it's also the reason why, I mean, Inosuke is effectively killed, right? The fact that you have to bring him back from like whole death. I mean, we'll talk about sort of the, the ways in which Chainsaw Man utilizes the same kind of dramatic twists and turns. And I think in that case... <laughs> It's a lot more effective in Chainsaw Man because they're able to bring it back believably. Now, I still think that you need to set up a very, very exciting cliffhanger with a very, very exciting conclusion. And so you got to bring both together. I don't think one works without the other, you know, genre piece aside. And speaking of amazing cliffhanger and amazing, you know, ending, team, you know, Demon Slayer effectively lost. There was a moment where the tables were turned on them and the only person left standing was Tanjiro. And there was like this really brilliant moment where because he was the only person standing, he was like, okay, what do I do? Do I run away? I need to save Nezuko. Like, that's my motivation. I need to save Nezuko. That's all that matters. I can't focus on anybody else. And he starts running away and Gyotaro catches up with him and he he effectively is like, hey, I'm not going to kill you. If you agree to become a demon, you can become stronger. And because you are so weak right now, you can protect anyone, not your friends, not your Hashira dude, and not, you know, your sister. But if you become a demon, you can protect her. That's what makes Tanjiro such a brilliant and amazing character. Because as I said, everybody else who's become a demon was also very much given that choice. They were also in a very low spot in their life. And they were seduced by this choice. Tanjiro on the other end of that doesn't get seduced by that choice. He overcomes that seduction and fights back. He knows the stakes of it because the last time we saw that happen was with the Flame Hashira and he was immediately after that he was killed. I think 
the top and the bottom of this to me are the highlight points and I'll I'll get to that in more of a wrap up in a second but the way in which it begins with that really highlights sort of the emotional center point of what it means to lose. Yeah, so he starts the season going to Rengoku's father and telling him the bad news, telling him that the Flame Hashira is dead. And that's a point that then I think just creates that much more tension and drama. Talking about setting things up, that's a point in which the setup really works. I don't know how intentional it is, which is where I sort of start to lose a little bit of my my patience with the writing, but I do think that whether or not it is intentional, it's an incredible moment and lands with such beauty. I think it's 100% is because in the Mugen Train, like Rengeku essentially serves as another mentor figure to Tanjiro. And it's a mentor figure he, he he grows to love very dearly in a very short time. And Rengoku, in the end of that arc, dies very heroically, protecting everyone and refusing to become a demon. And I think, you know, when he's given that choice, I think he's able to overcome the fear of that choice by having, to, having Rengoku's memory live on in his memory. You have the character of uh, Guitaro, I believe is. How do you pronounce him? Guit Good, good, <laughs> not guitar, but good guitaro. Uh, Gator, it's Gatoro, Gatoro. Gatoro. So, um, Gatoro has a moment near the end where, again, it's one of those things I just wish that we could have set things up a little bit or spent a little bit more time in some of this flashback territory because he has, other than with this one moment, pretty much the exact same central tension as the web demons from season one but unlike the entertainment arc the web demons have something interesting about them which is that their family is fabricated whereas in this case they're pretty close mirrors to tanjiro and his sister so the big thing is that then when you finally get that reveal and sort of see his last moments play out as a memory that is really effective the only problem is we didn't know that when we were fighting him. We didn't know anything about him as a character. But once you get that moment, it is sort of a fun little bottle episode or like a bottle moment of the episode because you see the background and it's just a really well-told story. But that's what I mean. I think that's where I think there is intention behind it because you said we never knew it. Neither did Tanjiro. What you're referring to is when Daki and Getaro both get beheaded. They both get defeated by Team Demon Slayer. When they get defeated, their heads roll to each other. And they're in their last moments as brother and sister. They just yell at each other for losing. You know, they start blaming each other. They start like saying these unforgivable things to each other as they're dying in their last moments. And Tanjiro goes up to them to make sure that they're dying, to make sure they're defeated. And as he sits there watching them, argue themselves as they're dying he starts understanding who they are as people you know when he actively realizes that you know these are the final things that they're saying to each other and they're very hurtful and he actively like shuts Gietaro's mouth with his hand and tells him like don't say what you're gonna say you're not gonna mean it these are your last moments together just love each other that's his like thing that he's trying to pass on to both of them you know and then that leads into sort of like this bottle episode of their past because it's like this perfect entryway of like how they came to sort of love each other as brother and sister and who they were as humans before they 
fell into becoming demons, which is tragic. Talk about hardship. I mean, the Gitoro, he has a lot of trauma. You know, his trauma is perhaps the greatest we've seen yet in the show. And it's really compelling. And similarly, his sister is someone who reflects very much her demon self. But it's one of those matters of tension where if you know what's going on inside a person, you can imbue that with their actions and you can follow that thread a little bit deeper. And so including that at the very end, I found to be a little bit confounding. Well, it's interesting because when I rewatched it, I just felt worse for them because a lot of things that you didn't get from the first watch, you, you get in the second watch. Like when Getaro is arguing with Tengen about like, oh, he was born with such gifts. You know, he was born very handsome. It's basically a projection that Gyotaro wasn't born that way. And it's part of his trauma. Yes. And he actively like scratches his face off in disgust for himself. And then it gets revealed. So there is foreshadowing. It's there, but it. I honestly think it just would have been better. You know, I think it's, it represents a stronger moment when we see it through Tanjiro's eyes, which is what ends up happening. Because just like Tanjiro, we just see them as demons that need to be defeated. It's only at the end where Tanjiro is reminded, no, they were once human beings. And on a deeper level, and this is, again, like the main theme of, of the entertainment arc, this idea like how close demons truly are to human beings. Like Tanjiro sees Daki and Yetaro is reflections of a darker path him and Nezuko could have gone into if he had become a demon as well. That said, in the so moving to the future of this show, I know that they have ended. They ended the manga, right? So the manga has been the manga has been finished. Whereas something like Chainsaw Man, I think the manga is still ongoing. Yes, they have the years ago, years ago. Right. Yeah. So basically the manga for Demon Slayer has been done for a couple of years. So people already know the ending, you know, like I, I would say that we've reached a 50% mark. Okay. So there's approximately two or three more seasons. Yeah, two or three more seasons is actually accurate because the next season is going to cover like the 75% of the manga. And then uh, who, have, who knows how long the last season will be. It, might, it will probably be split into two seasons because it's like a pretty major part of the story. Well, and once you get to the end, you get a lot more depth. And I suppose they'll also want to spend about seven, eight episodes just kicking around with Muzan, which might, in my opinion, be a little bit more interesting than when they... They were kicking around with these two demons here. And then in regards to Chainsaw Man, it's really interesting because the first saga had ended a couple of months ago. <laughs> so essentially, like the sequel story has, has started and it's widely different from the first saga. And I've been really enjoying it. But the first season covers about, I want to say, 20% of the first saga. So there's still like two seasons or three seasons left of the first saga. Oh, nice. Well, and we'll talk about my thoughts on that in a second, but I do want to say I think Demon Slayer is an interesting and entertaining show with a lot of interesting potential, and because its central character always remains pretty morally upright, um, and I mean, in terms of not necessarily just that he's like a good person, but like his moral center is the emotional center point of the show, and when we get a lot of time, when we spend a lot of time with Tanjiro, you can have him do anything. 
and it's engaging, as I mentioned before. So I think it's a good setup. You need to just spend more time delineating how that actual time is spent because I think this particular season, to me, has gotten a little bit overly ambitious and, as I mentioned, kind of straining credulity. You know, so the first season initially promised a really balanced program and had those entertaining aspects and darker themes along the way. But this most recent season moves a little bit away from that grounded use of breathing, as I mentioned. And so the show and its creators, I feel like, might be diverging out of a show that I'm interested in seeing. So my sort of moment of whether or not I step away really depends on whether or not they're able to emotionally ground those characters in a lot of the stuff I saw in the earlier episodes. But I also can see a world where they move more into the world of Naruto and maybe start going into this like cheap melodrama especially in the later seasons of a more typical style of show from this sort of world you get into romance plots right that's often very typical i couldn't really see that for tanjiro and what grounds him in this show and so that kind of stuff not knowing anything about it that said to me just watching the show as is without any idea on the source material that's where i stand yeah, and I think that's a wonderful place to stand because it's sometimes great to delve into the unknown. I mean, the plot points of the manga have been out for years, so I'm glad that you're not in that world enough to have it spoiled for you. You know, knowing the ending to uh, to Game of Thrones or whatever. The drama and the darkness don't hit as heavy. Yeah, exactly. I'm interested for you to watch the Sword Village arc, which is, you know, the next arc It's coming out in March. And I feel like it's personally, I think it's it's my favorite arc. And fortunately or unfortunately, I think that there is a very good chance that it is going to be an improvement on this. But it being your favorite, honestly, based off of sort of the alignment of, of how this show has run... I could definitely see, based off of your taste, it moving into a darker place, which is typically where you stand. I can see that actually working in the show's benefit, because as of now, I think the characters are starting to stagnate, and I think the lack of drama is what's holding it back. And if it's trying to plunge itself kind of neck deep in that, I can definitely see it being more palatable. That said, talk about delving into darkness. We are going to be talking about Chainsaw Man, but right after I play you the song that starts Chainsaw Man off. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that opening. That's the opening to the show that we're talking about. Chainsaw Man, maybe one of my favorite theme songs for a TV show on right now. It's fun. It's poppy, but it's also got this sort of sound of like early 2000s pop punk sort of sounds a little bit like Fallout Boy. Kind of cool little tune. Got some rock orientation. Talk to me about your interest in bringing Chainsaw Man. This was effectively the reason why we were doing this podcast well demon slayer broke the internet last year in 2022 with the entertainment district and of course in 2020 when the mugen train came out it became the highest grossing movie of that year with 500 million dollars and it became the highest grossing anime film and the highest grossing film from japan ever so that very much represented like the zeitgeist in anime for the past three years but chainsaw man has always been the other 
side of that zeitgeist. Because that's why I've been referring to both Demon Slayer and Chainsaw Man as new wave shown in anime or like stories specifically, like manga and anime together. Because those two specific art pieces focus on more darker and thematic subversions of actual what I call Golden Age shonen, which is Naruto, Bleach, and One Piece. Basically, it has evolved from that into something that's more grounded storytelling and subversions of previous tropes that have made shonen into what it is. And so Chainsaw in particular was, as I said, the other part of that spectrum. So when it was announced that an anime adaptation of it was happening after the first saga had finished in its manga form, the whole world was really excited about it. I mean, I didn't know what Chainsaw Man was until I saw myself bombarded on like Instagram and on specifically IGN and CNN about Chainsaw Man. And then I was like, okay, I have to to research and look at the show. It's totally impossible to ignore. Yeah. And I saw it. I was out in downtown LA last month and I saw it playing on a television set. Yeah. So that just proves how completely undeniable this show is even here in America. You said it yourself. CNN is no small feat. So you were like, we need to do an anime episode and we need to cover this. And so Demon Slayer was obviously the one to pair it with Now that I've seen Demon Slayer, I see these characters in window decals and just everywhere. But uh, someone I imagine will likely be on these decals and t-shirts and bandanas very soon is our main character for Chainsaw Man. The Chainsaw Man, Denji. So this is kind of an interesting little diversion. So while in another comparison point, Demon Slayer has demons, this one has devils, which is a distinct and different mode, but I imagine not wholly dissimilar. No. Demons and Demon Slayer are basically human beings who have been turned to demons by other demons or Muzan himself, whereas devils represent various fears of death that personified. And basically, so there is like a fear of guns. And depending on, on how worldwide that fear is, that devil representing the guns will be infinitely stronger. Whereas is like a devil representing, I don't know, uh, the fear of flies would be much weaker than, let's say, the gun devil. And the job of devil hunters in this world is to hunt them down because they are like a nuisance to humanity at large because they represent something that is viewed as like an old age problem. This age, uh, this fictional age found in Chainsaw Man is a lot of things that have, haven't happened in this world have happened in our world. So things that haven't happened and there in the Chainsaw Man world are things like the Holocaust, 9-11, and other major like atrocities and tragedies that we as a human as humans had to deal with. In Chainsaw Man, those things haven't occurred because people have hunted down like the devils representing war and the Holocaust and stuff like that. So this is a world that doesn't necessarily have war anymore, but instead the points of conflict are these devils. The type of world that they live in. I think does kind of closely resemble our world in some interesting ways in terms of the way in which the politics work in the devil versus human versus other types of characters. So I see a lot of that, but I do also, I think, just initially kind of intuit early on that this is a fantasy world kind of unlike our own. And 
Yeah, exactly. It, it feels much more distinct than something like Demon Slayer, in which you could imagine this happening in the real world, and these demons are just something you either don't believe in or don't witness. They're hiding underneath the surface. Right, it's an underworld. Whereas this is the world. We open with Denji. He works alongside a devil, and his devil is this cute little chainsaw guy. And Yeah, Pochita. Pochita and Denji, they're doing what they can to survive they're in some way kind of indicative of like a capitalist hellscape he's constantly living in debt and works hard for pennies and he ends up totally getting shafted by his employer who's this dirty evil old man who we never really learn the name of but who becomes an important figure for the season at whole yeah he's called gramps that's like his title given he's like the head of a specific mafia or yakuza in japanese and he basically denji has to take up his father's debt because his father owes a lot of money to the Yakuza. And so Denji lives entirely just paying off Gramps and the Mafia. And he does that by being like a freelance devil hunter. So he and Pochita, who he meets one day as a child, Pochita is a devil himself, the chainsaw devil to be specific. And he meets him one day by nursing him back to health after finding him hurt out in like some wilderness. And they become the best of friends. And what's really interesting about that is like, that's also just like a normal storyline trope. The hero meets, you know, like a cute animal or a cute thing, and they become like very close and they help each other. Chainsaw Man does something in a really interesting way. Pochita is the only relationship Denji has for a very, very long time because he's constantly in this bubble where he owes so much to this mafia that he doesn't really function as a normal human being. He's an orphan, right? I mean, effectively, yeah, because his father committed suicide from all the debt. So he is effectively an orphan and the only thing he has is Pochita. I mean, he doesn't even have enough money to buy like slices of bread. He has to share his slice of bread with Pochita and his dream is like just to pour on like jam on his bread. Exactly, dude. He's an intriguing protagonist, but he's also kind of a divisive one, right? So early on in this show, I found his character to be pretty two-dimensional and not very likable. Let's put a pin in that and we'll talk about it again later. So his character, as far as I see it in season one, is kind of this subversive or alternative coming-of-age story, right? Because he starts out kind of just like as a orphan who owes money and then crawls his way up the ladder, so to speak. But he's likely divisive because to me he's unrelatable. His journey becomes interesting over time, however, because he intellectualizes his shortcomings and interrogates them. But in order to do that, he has to make a quite literal transformation into somewhat more of an adult. Now we're getting to spoiler territory. So, uh, and um, so yeah, starting spoilers now. You've been warned. But basically, in the very first episode, Denji dies effectively. The mafia boss becomes in contact with the zombie devil. And the zombie devil, I mean, that's a disastrous deal. The zombie devil takes over Gramps and the entire mafia. And then they trick Denji into coming to the warehouse so they can grab the chainsaw devil. And what happens is that Denji is effectively 
killed. He's stabbed, and then he and Pochita hide in like a small little dumpster. And Pochita sacrifices himself by becoming Denji's heart. So they effectively become one, and Denji becomes a hybrid between a human and a chainsaw, and becomes Chainsaw Man himself. And immediately when he defeats the zombie devil, these two government-sanctioned devil hunters appear at the warehouse where Denji had defeated the zombie devil. And this beautiful um, devil hunter named Makima approaches Denji and offers him a choice, a life-changing choice, which is either I will kill you right now uh, as the devil you are, or you can be a government-sanctioned devil hunter. And that sets him on his path because obviously he wants to live and he immediately falls in love with Makima. It's not really a choice ever to begin with. The fascinating thing about this character, if Denji is the protagonist, Makima kind of suits as sort of his mentor, but she is a very strange mentor. What I love about Makima and public safety is that it feels like an agency straight out of a spy show like Alias. You know, Makima is warm, but she also just has this intentional deceptiveness around her. Makes me feel like I don't really trust her, but I want to like her anyways. And it steeps all the way into the way she interacts with other characters later on. Well, she knows what Denji wants from her, and she uses it to her advantage in really conniving, but really brilliant ways, because she consistently offers Denji a carrot, but at a stick's length. But it's also what makes Denji really brilliant, because it's through his interactions with Makima that we see how motivationless he's been most of his life, because he is effectively with the mind and experience of a toddler. He is a very dumb teenage boy too, right? Similarly, is driven entirely, I'm going to use some Freudian language here, by his id or his baseline. And when we talk about needs and story, it means something different from actual needs. He is driven by his needs. He is driven by his sex. He is driven by toast with a lot of jam on it. And that is what drives this character. And at first, when I was watching this show, I found that to be a little odd and factually a kind of grating. His character to me was completely unlikable and especially because you immediately bring in a parallel character that is identical to Denji with power. That's something that's so interesting to me because where you found that part in the beginning grading, I immediately found it as brilliant because again, in that golden age or even like silver age of shonen, you have characters like Goku from Dragon Ball and Luffy from One Piece whose motivations are literally to eat and to become stronger than their opponents. And then for Luffy's case, it's like an extra point of like becoming Pirate King, but it's still becoming stronger than everybody else. Those are effectively really good two-dimensional characters. But Denji, you know, like he appears as like a two-dimensional character from the very beginning because like Luffy and Goku, his base desires are so low. But unlike those two, there's a reason why they're so low. He just hasn't experienced anything. He's never had a girlfriend. He's never even had jam on his toast. I think you saw something I didn't, which is I saw that version, right? I saw the version of that that's just like very, very, very simple. And you saw what the 
potential is and the depth that could be carried. I do want to say initially I was completely off of the show and I have completely 180'd on it. So if for some reason you're listening to the spoiler-filled conversation, it's not too late to turn back and watch this show because if you if you're not totally sold on it, this is my sales pitch. It's a, a really great one. But that said, we're diving full deep. So <laughs> let's talk about some of these arcs because there are, I believe, three devils, three arcs, so to speak, within this series. We have kind of a introductory arc. This was where I was still like, what's happening? In retrospect, I can kind of see this is sort of them laying the pieces forward with the bat devil. You get some introduction on on power. Anaki becomes more in the story. Right. So you see her kind of movement. Aki, I think one of the main reasons why I was out on the show for so long is because Aki to me is not really a character I found much interest in, especially because he didn't really have any relationships in this early section. His relationship is entirely to be a counter to our protagonist. Yeah, he's a straight man. Which is fine. And yeah, he's, and as a straight man, I couldn't have cared less about Aki. And so I really had no one to connect with, except for kind of Makima. So Aki represents like the standard, like public safety agent, whereas Denji represents like the rookie. And in a lot of ways where Makima serves as Denji's superior love interest and, um, you know, overall like distant mentor, Aki represents uh, (laughs) sort of Denji's caretaker and foil and their relationship is supposed to be built that way where denji of course is like oh yeah i am just driven by my base desires no matter the consequences where aki is represented by like a very black and white view of justice and i think that's what makes their relationship at least interesting because they're essentially foils of each other but i agree with you jordan that in that first part even i was like beyond that aki is not that much a special or interesting character And I thought Power was actually more interesting because she was more of an extreme version of Denji in a lot of ways. Exactly. But at the same time, still, I was like, this is more of the same. Well, so I think really the first turning point was in episode five. Denji gets what he, and this is, I think, where the writing of the show starts to bubble up. And I'm like, oh, these guys have something here. Is where throughout the first five episodes, I'm talking about Denji. He only has one want, and that's to touch a breast. That's it. And in episode five, he touches someone's breast. Also, a little bit more about power. She is also called a fiend. So basically, she is a person that has let a devil sort of possess her, but she has kept being human in some way, which is different from Denji because he's not possessed by a devil. He has basically combined himself with a devil. Thank you for explaining that because that is extremely confusing. Yeah, so Denji is a hybrid classification because he has not been possessed. So in car terms, what's what's a fiend versus a hybrid? Uh <laughs> Is she an electric? She's like a she's like a 1970s car with an electric engine. Yes. But basically, Denji and Pochita have become sort of one and the same, whereas whereas the Blood Devil has effectively possessed power, meaning that he's also the Blood Devil has also overcome her personality with their own. Whereas Denji is able to retain his original personality. But at the same time, in terms of how they interact with the world, they both kind of have this soulless 
mentality. It's off-putting in the early episodes, but I think you sort of, or at least I sort of grow to understand and empathize with it, especially when the show becomes a little bit more meta and starts to interrogate these things a little bit more. Also, I should mention Power has her own version of her little Pochita, which is a cat called Meowie, and that is sort of the initial first arc is that Power is totally willing to sacrifice her number two into a deal with this devil, which also brings us to the fact that that is a normal part of this world. Devils and devil hunters can make deals with each other in order to further themselves. Yeah, going back to the bat devil and that storyline, basically the bat devil captured Power's cat, Meowie, and and this is after she became part of public safety and she becomes partnered up with Denji. She immediately betrays Denji. <laughs> Almost as soon as her introduction happened, she immediately betrays Denji to the Bat Devil because she's like, hey, look, I found the Chainsaw Devil, which is very much coveted by every devil out there. And we learned that very, very quickly. So Denji's constantly in ridiculous amounts of danger. But yeah, she essentially sacrifices Denji to this Bat Devil. But then this Bat Devil double crosses both of them because he eats both the cat and Power. And Power tells uh, Denji, look, if you can save us, I will let you touch my breasts, which is like his major motivation. And so he does that with the help of Aki, who is able to summon his own devil. Aki kind of comes in as a deus ex machina a little bit there. But basically, Aki is able to summon the fox devil because the way contracts work in this world is that devil hunters need to give up something in order to contract themselves with a devil. And the devil gets to dictate what that is most of the time. And if I remember for the fox devil, they devour like a part of your body each time it's used. So very quickly, the show constantly reminds you that even though this world doesn't have war anymore and it doesn't have certain atrocities in it anymore. This is still a very, very bleak and cruel world, especially for devil hunters. Well, and the wonderful thing that I feel like attaches so much to our modern world is that the stuff that's sinister lies under the surface and that there is this unspoken rule of law that runs this, the the criminal and the non-criminal world, but it always requires you to make a sacrifice and usually that sacrifice is deeply moral. And so that is, I think, the thing that ends up kind of turning this show for me in the last couple episodes into just such a highlight. You see that in the end of this arc where Aki interacts, he goes to Makima and he essentially just lies through his teeth. And Makima, you get a sense that she can kind of see through it. But the fact of the matter is this is the world. This is the contractual sort of obligation is that Makima lets rule-breaking slide. And I imagine that she'd let a lot worse slide if it was something that was advantageous to her. And I think that's true across the board. So even the people with souls have to sort of quell it because they live in a world where they have to interact with devils and the devils are as much part of their world as jam on toast. I mean, as you said, I feel like the major reoccurring fact of this world is the ends constantly justify the means. No matter what, you know, the devil hunters need to protect public safety. And in order to do that, they need to essentially sacrifice a lot. And we get that. And we get also into the psychology of other public safety members, which happens in the very next arc. 
Yeah, the Eternity Devil. This one brought me in. This is the moment. It brought me in too. When you and I first talked about this project, when I was first kind of diving in, I was like, yeah, take it or leave it. The Eternity Devil single-handedly won me over. You look at this versus the entertainment arc. A lot of characters, a lot of different plots, and a lot of kind of smaller plots all convene here in a really fantastic way. In the Eternity Devil arc, you have not just Aki and Denji in power, but the cast doubles. So you've got these three characters that they just add in. They're like, here they are. And you instantly get a sense of these character dynamics. You get a sense of the internal politics. And I don't mean politics in the way we were just talking about it. Who likes each other? Yeah. Himeno is basically Aki's actual partner, you know, in public safety. She's the one who's his sort of like original mentor. And she's been in love with him for a very long time. And she wants him out of public safety so bad. But the thing about Aki, we learn this about Aki in this section of the story is that the gun devil, the most dangerous devil there is, essentially murdered his family. And so it drove Aki to join public safety with this constant need to have vengeance against a de gun devil. So he can't leave public safety. So it's like a vicious cycle in order to chase after this thing that he's not sure he can defeat and Himeno trying to convince him to leave it. And you get that just in the span of like two episodes, which is amazing. Talk about good, tight storytelling. This is the kind of stuff that won me over in this latter half especially and I felt was was lacking in um, Demon Slayer. Just like you mentioned how the Mugen train caught you because it was so distinct, it felt like Inception. You know, the Attorney Devil arc or the Infinity Hotel arc, you know, like represents almost like a horror, psychological horror movie because they are stuck in this room for eternity and they don't know what to do. And the Eternity Devil gives them like an ultimatum, give me Denji, give me the Chainsaw Devil and I will let you out. And at first, public safety, the public public safety agents that are there are like, no, we're not going to give you Denji. He's one of us. We're going to protect him. But slowly and slowly, they start turning against each other because they're being driven mad. And that's the politics I was talking about before was how quickly you introduce these characters and then give them a situation where they need to make a choice on a dime. And that is what drives characters. And so there's Kobane and Hirokazu, and both of these people are kind of the secondary characters. We get to learn a little bit more about them after this arc, but in the in the process of this arc, you get a lot of character development very quickly, and both of those characters very quickly, we learn exactly who they are and what they believe in. And for uh, Himeno, I mean, she, I think, stays on a level in some ways. I think she's a little bit more calm as a character, but she's also somewhat, I think she's one of the more interesting characters in the secondary tier because you get so much development and so much specificity really early. And also the Eternity Devil arc in general, I find to be just so engrossing because it's a puzzle and it's not about endurance. It's not about being the strongest. It's not even about the sort of stuff that it, Demon Slayer at its best is about, which is utilizing the most efficient means of defeat. But instead, Eternity Devil is about solving the 
trick by moving past the puzzle and sort of developing what side are you not seeing. And that's what Denji eventually figures out, is that the Eternity Devil, like all devils, feeds on what drives them, which is fear. And so the fear is all, like, encapsulated, right? They're sort of like this, they're in this oven of fear, and that's how this Eternity Devil lives. And so by sort of turning off the heat, or lowering the heat a little bit, Denji is able to defeat the devil, which I just thought was fantastic. Well, the thing that motivates him to win is Himino promises a kiss to whoever defeats so his id is the thing that drives him. Well, and, and that was what drove him in the first place. What drives him to dive in is just because he thinks he can do it. It is a moment of stupidity, undoubtedly, but that is something that is so deeply ingrained in his character that you couldn't possibly fault the story from going in that direction. So he does first and then figures out afterwards. Yeah, because he has nothing to lose. And that's what makes his character so brilliant because he started off with having nothing to lose. And now he has, you know, he even says so himself, he has a lot to lose technically, like his new life, because he's so used to having that sensibility of nothing to lose. He constantly heads in with just his gut and his gut is usually right. Well, and it, it was the end of the this episode that sort of they're the last episode of the Eternity Devil arc that leads into the Katana Man arc. Yeah, right? it's episode seven. They celebrate. And I mean, it has one of the most anticipated moments in anime history where Denji gets his kiss. What I will say about it is not necessarily in terms of the mechanics of it, but in how there is a little bit more of the feminine wiles aspect, which is why she offers a kiss in the first place. And I I feel like that pays off in an interesting way. Well, for me, my favorite two episodes were episode seven and episode eight, you know, because they focus so much on Himeno and a focus on her trope as being like the seductive, beautiful anime character, which a lot of anime has. It's like fanfare. But what I love about her as a character is she not only subverts it, but she becomes the most real person in that show really really quickly and she has to be because when i saw her and when i saw her develop into that show i didn't see like an anime cartoon character anymore i saw a literal person so basically i want to give credit where credit is due specifically to episode eight which is called gunfire where it starts with him himino carrying denji to her apartment and the reason i want to give credit to this specific episode and this entire series to be honest is because it's shot in a very specific way. And I really want to use the word shot because this show actually has shot compositions like an actual live action show does. And the reason I mentioned these shot compositions is because when Himino carries Denji to her apartment, she sloggily comes in and actually trips with him and then carries him drunkenly to the bed and all of that. And that's just the first half. The first half of that is her acting like an actual human being would in that situation. It doesn't cut directly to you know them being in bed or something like that or anything else an anime would do to cut time no it actually builds up on just focusing on her apartment and her apartment's relationship to her because this entire time we are treated to himino as this seductive very much carefree person and her apartment being like this place where she feels the most freest because that's uh, where she invited denji to but through the shock compositions and through the way her apartment is 
shot, it's quickly revealed that she's actually trapped in her apartment, that she actually lives a very lonely and sad life. And she uses, you know, sex to forget all of that. And to me, that's the moment where this transcended just an anime show into an actual show because it treated its character with not only such grace and such tragedy, but such believable realism. Speaking of like the episode Gunfire, its second half becomes even more wilder. Jordan, do you want to lead a scene to in with well, that? Well, I mean, you were just talking about Himeno getting shot. I wanted to talk about how Himeno gets shot and dies. That's the moment that I found really powerful in episode eight and was ultimately the moment where I 180'd. You know, the uh, Infinity Hotel was something that was engaging and I felt like I was getting there. The moment when Katana Man arc begins is the moment when I was sold because it showed not only that they could build up these characters, but that they could just rip them away from you with no second thought. And that to me indicates that they understand how to build characters enough that they were like, no, nah, we don't need all of these people because guess what? We'll do it again. We'll build up more characters. There's a whole world out here and you can really feel the world early on. But you know, it's like any show, any show can world build, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the show has that depth that purpose and the beginning of katana man just proves it the introduction is of of course the gun devil's goons right so all six of them are immediately ambushed and it's also a moment of just absolute spectacular vision so only two of the six wind up dead at first i found that to be kind of underwhelming when i first saw it i was like oh man you know these characters i i thought that more of these characters because it was just sort of this crazy proposition but the more i sit with it the more i kind of have come around on it, especially because the specific characters who died were so powerful. I think the big thing was I was expecting Aki to get shot because that to me made the most logical sense and they keep Aki around. And that to me, I'm still kind of puzzled by. I don't really know what he's doing for the show. I mean, Himeno was the real tragic moment. And I think what was also brilliant about that specific episode, episode eight, leading into episode nine, because she effectively dies in episode nine, trying to save Aki. But in episode eight, we see them in like this ramen shop, just having fun together. The four of them, Himeno, Aki, Power, and Denchi. And it just feels like the beginning of an actual like shonen manga where we sit with like what's going to be the main cast for the rest of this show and that's quickly shattered because it reminds you once again how cruel this world really is and this show actually lines itself up more with game of thrones than it does with say naruto or one piece you know and i i think they kept aki around i mean i know why they kept aki around i read the manga speaking to this i think they kept aki around because it just deepens his guilt and his crisis of fate with public safety due to Himeno's death. The loss of Himeno could not have been the same without Aki living. Because even in her last moment, she's just like, Aki, you need to live. There's so many plot twists that happen in the Katana Man arc. I mean, but one of the things that is mind-blowing is that, you know, we also see for a brief moment, we see Makima die and get assassinated by one of the gun goons. But then she miraculously survives 
lives somehow and comes back swinging at them in such a cruel, sadistic way. And it was implicated that she has some sort of inside knowledge about this and so was able to sort of predicate it. That was the way I read it. Now, granted, I'm sure you have a different viewpoint on it. It does seem like she was in on it the whole time and that makes her character that much more interesting and particularly moving into the end episodes her B plot is so interesting because she goes and she talks to her superiors and she's basically like eh, who would have known and they sort of look down on her and she's like they're like what are you doing Makima and she's like I don't know I'm just running my experimental division of this public safety group nothing to see here <laughs> and it's like wow but that's the really cool thing is that Makima is and I was implying this early on I didn't really want to say it but she's uh, she seems to be kind of a secondary antagonist for the show maybe even a primary antagonist we just don't know she's not just like throwing a carrot at a six length at Denji she's throwing a carrot at a six length at us the audience but you know Makima and the massacre of a lot of public safety agents aside we also get introduced to another hybrid like Denji and Katana Man these two characters are total equals and they fight and ultimately one of them wins and he wins again in the same way that in the Eternity Devil arc he wins. It's by kind of a twist. It's not just because of one thing but it's because he's able to in the nick of time outwit Katana Man and that is his um, that's the thing that saves him. Yeah, Genji's true power, his only true power, aside like from Pochita's chainsaw man powers, is his unorthodox thinking. Because again, he thinks in such a weird way, he's able to outwit people with his own stupidity. So we were talking earlier about the old man called Gramps, I believe they refer to him as, is the father of Katana Man, which is grandfather. Like, oh, sure. Grandfather. Yeah, grandpa. The like most basic type of storytelling, right? It's bread and butter type yeah. stuff, but it's executed well. So it doesn't really matter if it's deep or not. And we also get introduced to a bunch of new characters as soon as Himino is taken out as well in the form of like the other fiends and the other like devils employed by public safety while attacking like Katana Man and his goons for a brief period. But that's like set up more for the second season. This world is very comfortable with introducing and taking away characters all the time and that's part of its strength no it reminds me a lot of the new star wars show Andor, actually both in the way that it utilizes those characters and the feeling of it kind of being like a spy show with that cold war era double speak yada 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 thing i just thought that was a fantastic port into something that i can't imagine very regularly spends time in that genre which is your shonen type new wave shonen as i like to call it i thought closing off on denji that his character actually reminds me a lot of the lead character in the banshees of anishirin he is sort of like bright-eyed he's a little strange but i think just his raw focus and his unwielding nature make him an engaging character, which is kind of fascinating. But it also means that in both cases, you need a strong writer to propel this character forward. And you can't give him any downtime, which they don't do in Chainsaw Man. Literally, the scene after 
Denji gets what he wants when he touches a breast. Immediately, he's seduced by Makima, and Makima's like, I'll give you more than that. And he's off to the races again. We need to talk about the fact that when he touched Power's breast, he was disappointed. And also when he kissed Himino, I mean, for a bunch of reasons, he was disappointed with that. But he was also disappointed with that. And both reasons came from him questioning, like, the motivation behind his id or his base desires. Well, and so he starts to be in conversation with his id later in when all of these people die, which is, I think, one of my favorite moments, too, is that he like is like, huh, I don't feel sad. I wonder why that is. And it's not much, but it's just enough. And part of that is, is that he's learning to become human because he hasn't had ever the opportunity to have any experience to allow him to understand things as other mature humans do. And that makes Makima the perfect person to guide him. I really want to put guide in quotation marks because she is able to feed information to him being like, well, the reason you didn't like touching Power's breasts is because you don't have feelings for her. So it didn't feel special. And then she forces him to touch her breasts. And then he immediately starts feeling something for that. But he's shocked by that feeling. Because again, he's learning everything from zero, which makes him that much more engaging. He is sort of like an adrenaline junkie, right? And similar to that, when you have someone who you have under your thumb, who you have as an addict, you can exploit them. And in that way, this is that kind of crime story in my mind. He is under the spell of effectively a power greater than him, a dealer, so to speak, of adrenaline. And that is the thing that Makima provides to him. That's the thing that she has to continually sort of drip in like an IV so that he'll keep coming back. And I I anticipate that that might change. I am really interested in what Denji has coming next. I have to say, in terms of most anticipated, I think this is one of my tops of the shows we talked about, just because the second season has so much potential. I can tell you that it's my favorite season and my favorite arc. I mean, it's my favorite arc, and I'm very, 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 very excited about it. Now you understand why this Chainsaw Man was part of my top five. I don't know if it would be in my top five, but it's very close. It would definitely be in my top ten. But that said, I had a really solid top five, which you can listen to right after we finish our episode, which is coming on up. This has been another great and a little long episode of Zeitgeist. Thank you all so much for listening and stay tuned on our podcast feed because very soon we are going to be talking about the Oscars in particular. We're going to be talking about two Oscar pictures that kind of resemble the state of our industry this year, which is with the Fablemans and Babylon. So stay tuned and have a great rest of your week, everybody. Don't get uh, eaten by a devil out there. I'm Jordan Conrad or seduced by a demon and I'm Nevo Buzz and we are signing off. We'll see you next time.